The story of Alexander the Great is one that begins long before his birth and doesn't end for long after his death. We must begin with his genealogy. His father, Philip of Macedon, was from the Argia dynasty, a dynasty that claims descent from the mythical king Argus. His mother, Olympias, is claimed to be both descended from Achilles and Dionysus. The birth of Alexander the Great is shrouded in myth and mystery. He is said to be the son of Nectanebo, the last pharaoh of the Egyptian dynasty. Nectanebo was a prophet of Serapis, Serapis being the son of Amon, the chief god of all of Egypt. Serapis tells Nectanebo that Darius is going to come in and take control of Egypt and that he should flee. So he does do this. He flees and he goes to Macedon. And the people are wondering what happened to their pharaoh. Amon appears to them and says, Nectanebo leaves as an old man, but he will return as a young boy. Keep that in mind. This is going to come up later. When Nectanebo was fled to Macedon, there he started his own cult of Serapis worship. And the Dionysian worshippers merged with him. One of the people there was Olympias. Olympias, being a worshipper of Dionysus, now met Nectanebo, where he taught her all about Serapis, the god of this world, and Amon, the chief of all the universe. He showed her many things and gave her many prophecies to show that his, what he's saying is true, and she became a follower. Then one day when Philip is off to war, he transformed himself into a snake, went into her room, and had intercourse with her, and she got pregnant, and that is how Alexander was born. It's a miracle birth. He is the son of Amon, because in the state that Nectanebo was in as a serpent, it was Amon, the power of Amon, that got Olympias pregnant, which makes Alexander the son of a god. As Olympias was laboring, she sat down on the birth stool and went into labor. Nectanebo stood by her, measuring the courses of the heavenly bodies. He urged her not to hurry in giving birth. At the same time, he jumbled up the cosmic elements by the use of magic powers discovered what lay hidden in them and said to her woman contain yourself and struggle against the pressure of nature get up from your chair and take a little walk scorpio is dominating the horoscope and the bright sun when he sees the beast of heaven yoked together and going backwards will return one who was born at this hour altogether of heaven take grip of yourself your majesty and wait for this star as well cancer dominates the horoscope and saturn who was the victim of a plot by his own children and who cut off his genitals at the root and hurled them to neptune lord of the sea and pluto god of the dead making way for the majesty of jupiter if you give birth now your son will be a eunuch hold on a little longer the horned moon in her bold drawn chariot has left the zenith and come down to earth to embrace the beautiful herdsman and demonian. Whoever is born now will die by fire. The next sign is not auspicious either. Bed-loving Venus, mother of Archer Cupid, will kill the swineherd Adonis. Whoever is born in this hour will take the luster of the woman 
Byblos and raise a great commotion around herself. Next is the lion-like rage of Mars. He is a lover of horses and war, but was exhibited naked and unarmed by the sun on his adulterous bed. So whoever is born at this hour will be a laughingstock. Wait, also for the passing of Mercury, your majesty. The goat horn next will the ill-omened one. You will give birth to a quarrelsome pedant. Your son will be a monster. Sit down now, your majesty, on the chair of the benefaction and make your labors more frequent and energetic. Jupiter, the lover of virgins, who was pregnant with Dionysus in his thigh, is now high in the clear heaven, turning into the horned Amon between Aquarius and Pisces, and designating an Egyptian as world ruler. Give birth now. And as the child fell to the ground, there were great claps of thunder and flashes of lightning, so that all the world was shaken. King Philip saw in a dream of some god of great physical beauty, with gray hair and a gray beard, he had horns on his temples, which looked as if they were gold, and in one hand he held a scepter. I saw him go into my wife, Olympias, by night, and lie down with her and make love to her. Then the god stood up and said, Woman, you have conceived a male child who will make you fruitful and will avenge the death of his father. Then I saw myself sewing up her body with papyrus, fibers, and sealing it with my own ring. The ring was of gold with a stone in it, and on the stone was engraved a sun, a lion's head, and a spear. While I watched this, I seemed to see a seahawk standing beside me, who roused me from the sheep, with beating of his wings. Tell me, what does this signify? Long live King Philip, the dream interpreter replied. What you saw in your dream is true. The sealing of the body of your wife is a reliable sign that she is pregnant. The god who you saw with the ram's horns and gray hair is the Libyan god, Amon. When Philip saw the newborn child, he said, I wished him not to be raised because he was not my own offspring. But now that I see that he is the seed of a god, and the birth has been signaled by all heavens, let him be raised in the memory of my son, by my previous wife who died, and let him be called Alexander. So then Nectanebo, after this all happens, Alexander's born, he is told by Amon, in a vision that his death is coming soon and that his death will come by the hand of Alexander, his son himself. Alexander was sitting by them when Nebo took his tables and examined the heavens. He said, Father, what you call the stars, are they not the ones in heaven? Of course, my child, replied the wizard. Can I not learn them? said Alexander. Yes, child, came the reply. When evening comes, you can. That evening, Nectanebo took Alexander outside to the city, to a deserted place, where he looked up in the sky and showed Alexander the stars of heaven. But Alexander, seizing him by the hand, led him to a deep pit and pushed him in. Nectanebo wounded his neck severely in the fall and cried out, Dear me, child Alexander, what possessed you to do that? Blame yourself, mathematician, Alexander replied. Why, child? 
because although you do not understand earthly matters, you investigate those of heaven. Then Nectarimbo said, Child, I am fearfully wounded, but no mortal can overcome destiny, as he was thinking about his oracle from Amon. What do you mean, said Alexander? I myself, replied Nectanebo, have read my own fate, that I was doomed to be destroyed by my own child. I have not escaped my fate, but have been killed by you. And Alexander at this time had no idea this was his father. He thought Philip was his real father. So then he replies, am I then your son? And this is like a Star Wars moment right here. Like, Alexander, I'm your father. And then Nectanebo told him the whole story of his kingdom in Egypt and his flight from there his arrival in Pella, and his visit to Olympias to cast her horoscope, and how he came to her disguised as the god Amon and made love to her. With these words, he breathed his last. So now Alexander knows the truth of who he really is. For those other layers, also with his genealogy, there's the philosophical layer, and there's the military layer. Philosophically, it starts with Pythagoras. Pythagoras of Samos was a contemporary of Pharisees, the Syrian, who were both influenced heavily by Homer and Hesiod's mythology. Pythagoras traveled into Egypt and learned all the rites of the mystics. He was there for 10 years, and then traveled to Babylon, where he studied another 10 years for the Babylonian rites, and then brought this back to Greece changing philosophy in Greece forever. He would go on to teach Xenophanes. Xenophanes is famous for his quote, only one God, no hierarchy. Beyond human conception, providence above is all there is. Parmenides was a student of Xenophanes who founded the Eolatic school, which taught about truth and logos. He taught Socrates. Socrates started a school, was attended by Plato and Diogenes. Diogenes would go on to become a wandering aesthetic, one who teaches about being with nature, while Plato would go on to write the Republic and talk about a philosopher king who's going to come and change the world and the fabric of reality as we know it. He did not know at the time but two generations later, he'd be talking about the son of Philip, Alexander the Great. He taught Aristotle. Aristotle was taken by Philip of Macedon and relocated to the city of Pella, where he taught 12 students. The son of Philip, Alexander, Antigonus, Cassander, Ptolemy Savior, Seleucus, Hephaestion, Perdiccas, Antipater, Aridius, Laomedon, Theophostrus, and Nicomus. And this was the Royal Academy of Macedon, which stayed open all the way until the 6th century AD when it was shut down by the church. Aristotle taught the Aristotelian axiom is the rule of love. Three conditions of the great philosopher king, which he learned from Plato, was physis, ethos, and logos. He described Alexander as a good and prudent leader. Alexander would learn how to rule and govern the world from Aristotle, who in turn learned from the great line of thinkers going back to Pythagoras in the Egyptian and Babylonian ancient rites. 
King Philip got his power in Macedon after a long line of kings in the Argead dynasty who, in, in the past, were satraps for the Persian dynasty, for Cyrus the Great and Xerxes. So King Philip, with the knowledge of the art of war, a new military invention known as the phalanx, and this would change the world militarily as we know it. And what it is, is these long spears that are in, almost impossible to penetrate. In the past, Thebes and Macedon would tend to be bought out by the kings of Persia, and they would destabilize Greece by fighting against Athens and Sparta. The great battle of Sparta, where the 300 Spartans fought off Xerxes, would set the stage for Greece to have confidence in their own selves. Fast forward 100 years later, now King Philip is king of Macedon. He unifies all of Greece, and he goes in and destroys all the remnants of Persian rule. Unifies Greece, starts the Hellenic League, the League of Corinth, where he makes a constitution for the people with centralized power, a national army. The only place that stayed out of it was Sparta. King Philip of Macedon was not yet fully confident in Alexander, especially knowing that it wasn't his real biological son and didn't look like him. He thought of the Egyptians as barbarians, thought of his son as nothing to be proud of. However, this would change when a horse named Bucephalus was brought in, and it was an untamable wild horse, but the strongest and fastest horse in the world has ever seen. Alexander was the only one who can tame this horse. He walked up to it, the horse immediately submitted to him, and this made King Philip very proud. And then, after this, he let his son lead an army into Scythia, where he won a major battle against the Scythians. The Scythians were then submitted to Macedon, which would make all of the West powered into the hands of Macedon. Even Gaul and the Germans gave tribute to Macedon. And this was all given to Alexander the Great upon Philip's death. All of the West was now united under Alexander. All he had left to do was turn his sights to the East. King Philip visited the Oracle of Delphi, where he was told, The bowl is crowned. All is done. The sacrificer is ready. And he thought this was about Darius being the bowl. But little did he know, he was the bowl. So what happened was, there was a royal marriage between Philip's daughter and the king of Hellas, where they had 12 statues brought in of the 12 Olympian gods, and the 13th brought in the statue of Philip himself, deifying himself as the 13th god of Greece. 
So when he was deified and added to the Pantheon, later that day he was assassinated and killed. Olympias placed a golden crown on the head of the killer after he was found and murdered, which some people think that she was the one who paid him to do this because this would give Alexander the power because he is the heir. Alexander was immediately made king. At age 20, Alexander was king of all of Greece and inherited the League of Corinth that his father set up and also all his phalanxes. Alexander III immediately claimed the throne and wielded his military force to suppress the revolts that had erupted in Greece and the Balkans following Philip's death. Therefore, Alexander set out to realize his late father's ambitions, leading an army of 30,000 soldiers and 5,000 strong cavalry on a masterfully drilled military campaign to conquer all of Greece and then set his sights on a perfect this time people of Thebes who used to be who used to be aligned with the Persians revolt against Macedon and Alexander where Alexander goes down to Thebes destroys the entire city and burns it to the ground after this Alexander goes to the Oracle at Delphi it was in the middle of the winter time when the oracle was shut down. The oracle refused to comment. Then Alexander dragged the priestess by her hair out of her chamber until she screamed, You are invincible, my son. And that was the oracle that he accepted. The next thing he did was go into Athens. And Athens fought a little bit at first, but then they ended up uh, bowing to him. So after that happens, he goes and meets Diogenes. Diogenes was pleading in his arguments, in his debates, that they should align with Alexander the king. He's taught by Aristotle, he says. If he's taught by Aristotle, he's in good hands. We should allow him to be the king, and we should support him. This was very strange for someone like Diogenes, who does not get into politics. He doesn't care. He is a wandering aesthetic. He lives in the woods. He lives in under a barrel. He's surrounded by dogs. He wears the same clothes every day. He doesn't bathe. He doesn't have anything. And this was very, for him to say this, was very out of character. So then Alexander goes and visits him. And this is what happens between Diogenes and Alexander. The Greeks held a general assembly at Isthmus and voted to embark on the expedition against Persians with Alexander, who was proclaimed as their leader. Many statesmen and philosophers came to congratulate him. And he hoped that Diogenes of Sinop, who was living in Corinth, would do likewise. But since he paid not to the slightest heed to Alexander and remained at his leisure in the Karanian, Alexander himself went to go see him and found him stretched out in the sun. At the approach of so many people, Alexander walked up to him and said, I'm Alexander, the great king. And I, replied, am Diogenes, the dog. Diogenes sat up a little bit and fixed his eyes on Alexander. When Alexander greeted him and asked him if there was anything he wanted, he said, Yes, that you should stand out of my son. It's just hilarious how this he is the father of cynicism. This is what he does. Everyone knows this. 
So he says, it is Ale- it's said that Alexander was so impressed by this, by the arrogance and grandeur of the spirit of a man who can treat him with such disdain. And no one else had the balls to say this stuff to him. That he said to his courtiers, who were laughing and joking about the philosopher as they were walking away. But I'll tell you this, if I were not Alexander, I would wish to be Diogenes. And but Diogenes replied, if I were not Diogenes, I would wish to be Diogenes too. And then Alexander said, aren't you afraid of me? Well, tell me this, asked Diogenes, are you a good thing or a bad one? And when Alexander replied, a good one, he said, then who's afraid of what is good? Seeing Diogenes asleep in the jar, he said, a jar full of wits, at which the sage rose up and said, O mighty king, rather the last drop of fortune than a jar full of wits, for when it is absent and one wits feels the misfortune. Diogenes asked Alexander for a drachma. He replied, That's no proper gift for a king to bestow. But when Diogenes said, Then give me a talent, he replied, And that's no proper thing for a cynic to ask. So they have this dialogue back and forth. It's pretty interesting. This would make a great scene in a movie. Alexander filled a dish with bones. One day, sent Diogenes the cynic to receiving it. And Diogenes says, A meal befitting a dog, but not a gift befitting a king. Another time, where Diogenes was going through garbage pals, and he was sifting through some bones. Alexander said, well, what are you doing? Why are you looking through those bones? And Diogenes said, I'm looking through the bones of your father, but I could not distinguish them from the bones of slaves. It's like he just had absolutely no fear of Alexander, did not care, but in all in all, he did support the man. Diogenes said that Alexander was not content to be a man, but was too foolish of being a god. So the Athenians voted that Alexander should be honored as Dionysos. And he said, then for my part, you can make me Serapis. Alexander went on to capture Rome. Next there, ambassadors of all the nations, of Gaul, Spain, Carthage, Germany, including Italy, came and made obsequies before him, bringing him gifts of gold and silver, countless in number, and promising him their allegiance. He captured Rome. The Romans came out to meet him with drums and dances, beating branches of bay in their hands, and he came up and addressed him as ruler of all the world. He entered the city and went to the temple of Capitolone Jupiter, where the priests welcomed him and made him his guest. So now that the revolts were squashed, and once again the West is under the rule of Alexander, and there is really no opposition at all. All of Europe is paying tribute to him. Rome is paying tribute to him. Gaul is paying tribute to him. The Germans, the Scythians, they're all sending him armies. He has everything. So now Alexander goes into Asia, where he has his first battle with Darius, where he wins victoriously, and Darius flees, and he runs away from him and loses half his army. Alexander captures his mother and his wife, who he has as slaves, but he treats them well, apparently, according to the historians. 
treats him as his own family. He set off again to pass Syria. He turned his footsteps to the east. All those he encompassed begged him for forgiveness. But if any dared to resist him, he had their cities destroyed to foundations. And his broad sword mowed them down. Fear and trembling ran through the east, so that all the people left their cities and fled. The news reached Arius. O king, they said, there is no hope for safety of us. This race of Macedon, we are lost. Very soon, we will reach even here. Alexander went, went into Judea. When this became known to everyone in Persia, the Persians entered into accord with the Macedonians. In the meantime, Alexander ordered his general Seleucus to assemble the whole Persian army. Seleucus gathered the troops together with all speed. There were about one million horsemen, four million foot soldiers. The rest had been killed in the war. Alexander united these men with the Macedonian army and marched towards Judea. The Jews wanted to visit him and sent out spies who were presented themselves as ambassadors. But Alexander was not deceived. He ordered some of his most warlike young men of Macedonian phalanx to ambush them in a nearby ravine. They hastened to carry out the orders. The Macedonian troops were always swift to obey. Then he turned to the would-be spies. See, he said, you ambassadors of the Jewish race, death is nothing to a Macedonian soldier. Go, therefore, and do what is appropriate. I shall come to you tomorrow and shall do whatever is approved by providence above. When the leaders heard this, they gave orders to surrender to Alexander. The priests dressed themselves in their priestly robes and went out to meet him, together with a multitude of followers. When Alexander saw them, he was frightened at their appearance and ordered them to approach no further, but to return to the city. Then he summoned one of the priests and he said, your appearance is like that of gods. Tell me, what god do you worship? I've never seen priests of any other of our gods dressed like this. And they told him, We serve one God, who made heaven and earth, and all that is visible and invisible. No mortal man can discover him. And then Alexander replied, You are worthy priests of the one true God. Go in peace, and your God shall be my God. He says, I shall not treat you as I have done the other nations, because you are servants of the living God. They brought quantities of gold and silver to Alexander, but he was reluctant to accept it. Let these gifts, as well as the tribute I decreed, be dedicated to the Lord God. I myself will take nothing from you. So then what happens? The priests tell him and show him the book of Daniel. And they tell him that these, these prophecies of the final king who was going to come after the three kings of Persia which was Cyrus, Xerxes, and Darius. And he is the fourth king, the greatest king of all, who is going to conquer the entire world. And then they tell him, no sooner that he conquers the entire world will his empire be divided into four parts. Here's what Josephus has to say about this. Now, when Alexander, king of Macedon, had put an end to the dominion of the Persians. 
He said, Alexander, quote, I did not adore him, but the God who has honored him with the high priesthood. For I saw this very person in a dream, in this very habit, when I was at Dios in Macedonia, when I was considering with myself how I might obtain the dominion of Asia, exhorted me to make no delay, but to boldly pass over the sea there. For that he would conduct my army, and would give me the dominion of the Persians. Thus it is that, having seen no other in that habit, and now seeing this person in it, and remembering that vision, and the exhortation which I had in my dream, I believe that I bring this army under the divine conduct, and shall with it conquer Darius, and destroy the power of the Persians, and that all things will succeed according to what is in my own mind. And when he had said this to Parmenio, and had given him the high priest of his oath, the priest ran along with him, and he came into the city, and when he went up into the temple, he offered sacrifice to the god according to the high priest's direction, and magnificently treated both the high priests and the priests. When the book of Daniel was showed to him, wherein Daniel declared that one of the Greeks should destroy the temple of the Persians, he supposed that he himself was the person intended, and as then, he was glad. He dismissed the multitude for the present, but the next day he called them to him and directed them to ask what favors they pleased of him. Whereupon the high priest desired that they may enjoy the laws of their forefathers and might pay no tribute on the seventh year. He granted all they desired. I think it would be fitting for me to, to now read what is actually written in the book of Daniel. It says here, Three kings of Persia are yet to come, and a fourth shall acquire the greatest riches of all. Strengthened by his riches, he shall arouse all the kingdoms of Greece. But a powerful king shall appear and rule with great might, doing as he pleases. No sooner shall he appear, that his kingdom shall be broken and divided in four directions under heaven. But not among his descendants or keeping of this mighty rule. For his kingdom shall be torn to pieces and belong to them. So the book of Daniel also describes his appearance as being somebody with horns, the horned one. His body was like crystallite, his face shone like lightning, and his eyes were like fiery torches. The Quran would also describe this same savior-like figure as Dual Al-Qaeda. The Quran, Al-Qaq, then he followed another path until he came between two mountains. He found beside them people who could scarcely understand a word of his language. They said, O Dual Al-Qaeda, Gog and Magog are causing corruption in the land. So we pay you tribute on one condition, that you set a barrier between us and them. He said, What my Lord has given me is better than any tribute. Help me with the force of laborers, that I will erect a barrier between you and them. Bring me flocks of iron. Then he filled the gap between the mountains and said, Now blow on the fire with your bellows. When the iron blocks were red with heat, he said, Bring me molten brass to pour on them. So they... Gog and Magog were not able to scale it, nor were they able to bore through it. And he said, This is the mercy from my Lord. But when they promise of the Lord com comes to pass, he will level it to dust on my Lord's promises ever. And what they're talking about is the same event in Daniel that these Jews were talking about, where this man, the horned one, they call him, come from the west, and he will set up borders between the barbarians of Scythia 
which is Gog and Magog, and the civilized world of the Jews, the Arabs, and the Persians. And this is actually, there's actually a verse in the Alexander legend that they got, that the Quran is drawing from. And here's what it says when Alexander reached the borders of Gog and Magog. He saw the two mountains would be suitable for closing up their exit. So he stayed there and prayed to the sole God to help him close the mountains, to keep them out. He stood and prayed as follows. God of gods, Lord of all creation, who made all things by your word, both heaven and earth, nothing is impossible for you. All things are slaves to the word of your command. You spoke and they were created, and you commanded it and it was done. You alone are eternal, supreme, invisible, sole God, and there is no other but you. Through your name and your will, I have done what you wished, and you have placed the whole world in my hands. I call now upon your name that is so often praised. Fulfill this request of mine, and cause these two mountains to come together as I have asked you, and fix them in narrows between the two mountains and oil them. The nature of the oil which was and could not be burned by fire, nor dislodged by iron, within the gate stretching back to open the country. Goth and Magoth is the names of the two nations. 22 kings with their subject nations behind their borders. The Quran has a almost plagiarized version of Alexander Greek Romance, which is very, very fascinating. century Alexandrian Jewish philosopher wrote as follows in the works of Philo he says having therefore looked around it on all sides and having contemplated itself on its own faculties it ventured to utter the same boast that Alexander the king of the Macedonians did for they say that he when he determined to lay claim on the supreme dominion over Europe and Asia stood in a suitable place and looking around him Upon everything said, all things on this side and all things on that side are mine. The Talmud in the sixth tractate mentions Alexander of Macedon. It says, Rabbi Judah said, whoever did not see the double colonnade in Alexandria has never seen the dignity of Israel. They say it was like a great basilica one colonnade within another, and that sometimes it held 600,000 people, as many as left Egypt in the Exodus. Some say it was double the number who left Egypt. 71 gold thrones were there, corresponding to the number of judges in the Sanhedrin, and each was made of not less than 21,000 talents of gold. In the center was a wooden platform on which the overseer of the congregation stood with flags, and it was time to respond, Amon! He waved his flag and all the people responded, Amon! People did not sit at random, but goldsmiths in their designated place, silversmiths in their palace, brass workers in their place, and the weavers in their place, so that when a needy person came in could tell who his fellow artisans were and approached them to receive support for himself and dependents. Abbaia said, Alexander of Macedon killed them all when they were punished because they transgressed the words of the scripture. The Lord has warned you, you must not go back that way again. Deuteronomy 17:16. Now, this is what I'm going to get into next is the 
building of the city of Alexandria, which becomes a giant, giant city that's predominantly Jewish. We just read from Philo of Alexandria. He's living there. He's a direct product of what Alexander did in building this city. And what they're explaining, what I just read, is sort of a Masonic brotherhood of rites, where you have the goldensmiths and the woodsmiths and the bricksmiths, and they're all in their areas. And you would go in and you would find what you need by different areas, exactly how the Freemasons are operating. This was happening in Alexandria, Egypt, from the time of Alexander all the way through the time of Caesar. He goes into Egypt, and this time he builds Alexandria. Before he builds the city, he has to find some oracles first. He needs to get some revelations from Amon, the sole god, the god of all the world. So he came to a place where his navy was. From there, he sailed over to Sicily. He quickly defeated those who opposed him and landed on Italian ground. The Roman generals sent him a crown of pearls. Now Alexander went into Africa. The African generals met him and begged him to stay away from their city of Carthage. But Alexander despised them for their cowardliness and said, either become stronger yourselves or pay tribute to those who are stronger than you. Then he set off and crossed the whole of Libya until he came to the sanctuary of Amon. He himself went to sacrifice to Amon on the grounds that he was the God's son. He prayed and said, Father, Amon, if it's true what my mother has told me, that I am your son, give me a sign. Alexander saw a vision of Amon racing his mother Olympias and saying to him, Child, Alexander, you are born of my seed. When Alexander had thus learned of the power of Amon, he repaired his sanctuary and gilded the wooden image of the god and dedicated it with an inscription of his own. Alexander erected this to his father, the god Amon. He wanted to receive an oracle from him to indicate where he should found a city to be named after himself so that it should endure forever and that he had a vision of Amon as an old man with golden hair and ram's horns on his temple saying, O king, thus Phoebus of the ram's horns says to you, if you wish to bloom forever in the incorruptible youth, found the city rich in fame opposite the Isle of Proteus, where Ion Plutonus himself is enthroned as king. He, with his five-peaked mountain, rolls round the endless world. When Alexander received this oracle, he set out finding which island of the Proteus and who was the god of his presided over it. Thus, engaged, he sacrificed again to Amon. He founded a city there and settled some of the most distinguished of his natives in it and called it Peritone. Then he came to Terrasphiron. He asked the local people why it had that name and they replied, the sanctuary was the grave of Osiris, also known as Serapis. And sacrificing there also, he approached the goal of his journey and reached the site of the present city. He saw a great open space, stretching into the infinite distance and occupied by twelve villages, now the streets of the great god Serapis. Another canal is the site of the main square, the largest river, Xylero, and that's now Spendia. So he builds the city here, which is now still there today. It's called Alexandria. Giant city. And the foundations are built by the oracle he gets from Serapis. 
Serapis tells him how to build the city. Alexander inscribed five letters, A, B, G, D, E, which is the first five letters of the Greek alphabet. A for Alexander, B for Basilius, which is king, G for Genos, descendant, D for Dios, which is God, E for Achistan, founded in a comparable city. So the first five letters of the Greek alphabet stand for Alexander, king, son of God, founded in a comparable city. So next, Alexander saw the obelisks that now lie in the Serapium, outside of the present perimeter wall. On them were engraved hieroglyphic letters. Alexander asked whose obelisks they were, and they told him, King Sinochus, the ruler of the world. The inscription in priestly lettering ran, King Sinochus of Egypt, the ruler of the world, erected this to Serapis, the renowned god of the universe. Then Alexander turned his eyes to Serapis and said, O oh, great Serapis, if you are God of the universe, give me a sign. The God appeared to him in his sleep and said, Alexander, have you forgotten what you said when you made sacrifice? Did you not say, whoever you are, watch over this land and the endless world, receive my sacrifice and be helper in my wars? Suddenly an eagle flew down and seized the entrails and placed them on the altar. Did you not realize that I am God who watches over all things? So this verse, this passage is very important because what it does is telling you that Amon and Serapis and Zeus and even the Babylonian Zeus, which is El, which we're going to find out later, they're all the same deity, just spoken in different by different names, by different people. But he's basically saying, when you prayed to me as Amon, did I not respond? When you prayed to me as Zeus, did I not respond? And now you're praying to me as Serapis and here I am. So now, the, basically, the book's trying to tell you that Alexander is the son of the sole god of the universe, the god of the Jews, the god of the Greeks, the god of the Libyans, the god of the Egyptians. He is the son of God. This is the first, really, book of the real Christianity. This is proto-Christianity. Upon this, Alexander is now told by Serapis that he's told his fortune. He's told that he's going to conquer the entire world and as soon as he conquers the world, he will die. After this event, the Egyptians remembered the oracle they got from Ammon that stated that Nectonebo would leave as an old man and come back as a young boy. They now realize that Alexander is Nectonebo, which means Horus is strong, praised by Hathor. And Nectonebo is the new pharaoh, and they even pronounce him as pharaoh. And the leaders of Ethiopia, Libya, Cush, Egypt, and Nubia all come together and give their respects to Alexander Pharaoh and send him legions for his campaign against Persia. He is now king of the entire West. Even though Darius is now on the run and he hasn't even entered Babylon yet, the completion of conquering all of the Mediterranean is a turning point. Alexander got a oracle from Ammon 
to go and dress up like the god Hermes and go into Darius's camp and get his information. And he does this. He follows the orders of Ramon. And he gets caught, but he escapes unharmed. He walks into Babylon, untouched, uncontested. No one challenges him. It's just a free city. They give up to him. They don't even fight for him. They just say, you are our king. So there's a glorious moment that's famous where Alexander walks into the city on his horse and all his men behind him. And it's this glorious moment of the triumph of Alexander because Babylon was seen as the world capital. It was the middle of the world. It was the throne of the God of God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, King Cyrus, King Darius, King Xerxes. They were always enthroned in either Babylon or Persepolis, which is not too far away. And this Persepolis, the city that he goes to next. So he goes into Persepolis and he actually burns it down. He does not want Persepolis to be able to rise up with all its wealth and contest him. So Persepolis gets burned down. Now he finds out, as he's going to find Darius, that Darius has been killed by one of his own men. So what he does is, interestingly enough, he goes and finds the body of Darius and gives him a proper burial. Right around where he finds the burial of Cyrus the Great, he visits the grave of Cyrus the Great, holds an offering there, He's paying all this respect to these Persian people, and his army's noticing that he doesn't really hate the Persians. But what he's trying to do is he's trying to go in and bring Aristotle's philosophy across the world and change the world for a better place. So what he does, he goes into the north and he tracks down the killers of Darius and has them crucified on the grave of Darius. So he avenges Darius. of the entire known world. The only person who's left to oppose him is King Porus, king of India, king of all the east. So he enters what's called the land of the blessed. And this is a very strange place. There's people that have goat heads, people with multiple hands, six hands, seven fingers. It's all just mythicized to make you think that he's in this weird, strange world that's different from Greece. After leaving the land of the blessed, he marries Roxanne. Roxanne is an Indo-Aryan, Indo-Iranian princess who is said to have no political importance at all. It's just some backcountry of Iran. However, there are some theories that say that Roxanne is a descendant of Queen Tomyris. Queen Tomyris was the queen that killed King Cyrus who is known as the Messiah in the Old Testament. Uh, His army is like, why are you marrying this barbarian? Why aren't you marrying a Macedonian? But he does not listen. He does what he wants. Next, he enters the land of darkness. And then here, he finds a clear spring, which water flashed like lightning. A spring of life, it's called. The water is as clear as ever. And one of his cooks goes in to grab a fish from there to cook. And he kills the fish. 
But when he dips it in the water again, it comes back to life. So this is the water, this is the spring of life, the mythological fountain of youth, basically. So the cook steals some of the water, but doesn't tell anybody. But later on, decides to tell Alexander what happened. But they're already days away from this place, and they can't return. And he's upset. He imprisoned Cook. But the cook reaches out to Kali, which is the daughter of Alexander. And he says to Kali, drink of this water. It gives you eternal life, but free me. So she does. And she drinks of the water. And Alexander finds out that he gave his spring of life to his daughter. And so what he does is he forces both of them into exile. And Kali ends up going into the mountains where she is now said to be the spirit of the mountains. And she just dwells there because she has eternal life. And she changes her name to Naraida, which means immortal of water. And the cook ends up being cast into the sea where he lives as a spirit in the water of the sea known as Alexandros after Alexander. Next, he travels to the Islands of the Blessed, where he sees two birds carrying an orb of light. And he gets an oracle from Amon, where it says, this is the land of the gods only. But the land is yours. So he follows the plow constellation towards his destined location towards the east to go and fight King Porus. And he sets up an arch. He writes on the arch, land of the blessed. Some soldiers find these giant birds and they tie balloons to them and go into the balloons and they're able to fly on these birds. And Alexander decides to make a machine that ties to these birds and he conquers the air and starts flying around. And they say, Alexander conquered the air. And while he's in the sky, he sees a dragon who he speaks to. Soon, a flying dragon in the form of a man approached me and said, Alexander, you have not yet secured the whole earth. And are you now exploring the heavens? Return to earth as fast as possible, or you will become food for these dragons. He went on. Look down on the earth, Alexander. I looked down, somewhat afraid. And behold, I saw a great snake curled up. In the middle of the snake was a tiny circle, like a threshing floor. Then my companion said to me, Point your spear at the threshing floor, for that is the world. The snake is the sea that surrounds the world. Thus I admonished providence above and returned to earth. Seven days journey from his army. When he returns, he goes and finds another body of water. And he decides that he wants to see what's at the bottom of his water. He creates a device with a little hole inside of it with a hole that reaches above the water and he basically builds a submarine he goes into the bottom of the water but as he gets to the bottom of the water a giant leviathan well swallows him up just like jonah in the bible swallows him up and casts him out of the water where he arises in another location 70 days away from his people when he reached the land It crushed the cage with its teeth and cast him up on the beach. He was gasping, half dead from the fright. 
He fell on his knees and thanked Providence above that had saved him from the frightful beast. Alexander, now, you must give up attempting the impossible, or you may lose your life in attempting to explore these deeps. So now he's conquered water, he's conquered air, but he's being told you have to conquer the land first. You've done it all, but you still have to conquer the world. You haven't done it yet. So he's done with these little side missions, and he goes back to his normal plan and going into India. So then he finds some fish in another land with glowing lanterns inside of them. And they're able to extract these lanterns out of the fish. And they're these glowing stones. He comes upon a land with centaurs and he goes to war with a bunch of centaurs and defeats them. He sets up a shrine where he finds an old shrine next to Mithra, where Apollo gave oracles. Mithra being the sun god of the Indians. So now he's getting close to India. He sees the shrine of Mithra, makes a sacrifice there, gets another oracle, same oracle about his death, that he's going to be conquering the world, he's going to die. Here's it third time. And King Porus sent ambassadors with a hostile message, saying that he was a god and that he was with Dionysus, and that him and Dionysus are telling him to get away or they'll be fighting a whole army of wild animals. But Alexander does not listen to this because he knows that he's the son of God. So he goes to battle against Porus, and Porus has an entire army of wild animals. And as the fighting pursues, everyone is dying. There is no clear-cut winner. Both armies are dwindling down to nothing. And Alexander sends a letter to Porus saying, why don't you and I fight one-on-one? We'll just end it like that. So they do. And I guess Porus was eight feet tall. Alexander is only five feet tall. But Alexander, being a brilliant wrestler and fighter, scoops him by his legs and then stabs him in his gut and kills him. And he wins the war. And then he has India paying tribute to him. So he goes and meets the Brahmins. The Brahmins are the Hindus and Buddhists and Vedic philosophers. In the life of Polyonius of Tyana, Flavius Philostratus writes this about Alexander the Great. Alexander, at the foot of the mountains of India, was told to have an oracle from Dionysus where he laid up top of the mountains. So there he had his origins. But the inhabitants of Nisa deny that Alexander ever went up to the mountain. So they say that he passed by Nisa, making his vow to Dionysus and sacrificing at the foot of the mountain. He also says, having crossed the river Hydrates and passed by several tribes, they reached the Hyphasis and 30 states away from there, came on altars bearing the inscription to Father Amon and Heracles, his brother, and to Athena, Providence, and Zeus of Olympias, and the great Kaberi of Samothrace, and the Indian Mithra, and the Delphian Apollo. And they say that there was also a brass column dedicated and inscribed as follows. Alexander stayed its steps at this point. The altars, we suppose, are due to Alexander, who so honored the limit of his empire. But I fancy that the Indians beyond the Hyphasis erected the column by way of their expressing their pride at Alexander's have gone no further. The Brahmins learned that King Alexander was on his way to them, and they sent their best philosophers to him, bearing a letter. 
we, the naked philosophers, address the man Alexander. If you have come to fight us, it will do you no good. There is nothing you can take from us. To obtain from us what we do have, you must not fight, but humbly ask. Ask it not of us, but of providence above. If you wish to know who we are, we are naked, and we are devoted ourselves to the pursuit of wisdom. This we have done, not by our own decision, but through the agency of providence above. Your business is war, ours is wisdom. When Alexander read this, he approached them in a peaceful manner. He saw the great forest and tall trees, beautiful to look at, bearing all kinds of fruit. A river ran around the land, and clear water as bright as milk. They were innumerable palm trees, heavy with fruit, and vines stocked with a thousand beautiful and tempting grapes. Alexander asked them some questions. Or do you have graves? This ground where we dwell is our grave, came the reply. Here we lie down, as it were. Bury ourselves when we sleep. The earth gives us birth. The earth feeds us. Under the earth, we die. We spend our eternal sleep. Who are greater in number, he asked. The living or the dead? They replied, the dead are more numerous because they are no longer exist as they cannot be counted. And they go back and forth in this dialogue. They ask these very philosophical, deep questions to each other. And Alexander learns a lot from these people. It seems to me that they exchange Greek philosophy from Aristotle, Pythagoras, Diogenes, and in reply, Hindu, Vedic, Brahmin philosophies of the Buddha, Krishna, Lao Tzu, who already lived before these times. And he brings all these ideas back to Greece, back to Egypt. And I think this has a strong influence on the religions that come later, like Christianity, as well as Manichaeism. Manichaeism is very, very Buddhist, but he, Manny also called himself a disciple of Christ. This Aristotle philosopher king that Plato talked about, it's happening now. So not only does Alexander conquer the world with the might of his dad, uh, of the Argives, of the of the Achilles blood, he's also spreading the ideas of Pythagoras, the Illusionian mysteries, the Babylonians, the mystics of Egypt. And this world is changing now because of this. This is probably the biggest drastic change the world sees is from the time of Alexander forward, the Hellenic period, as you will. So he meets Dandamis, who is the king of the Brahmins, and Alexander says to them all, Ask you for whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. And once they all burst out, give us immortality. But Alexander replied, That is a power I do not have. I am too mortal. So they asked him, Since you are immortal, why do you make so many wars? When you have seized everything, where will you take it? Surely you will have what you leave behind for others. And then he says to them, It is ordained by providence above that we shall all be slaves and servants of divine will. The sea does not move unless the wind blows it, and the trees do not tremble unless the breezes disturb them. Likewise, man does nothing except by the motions of divine providence. And what he says actually strikes familiar with these Brahmins who are familiar with the Mahabharata when Lord Vishnu or Krishna talks to the prince Arjuna and tells him that in this world, war is sometimes necessary to bring about the changes 
to progress mankind. So he actually wins them over with his speech. Alexander goes into Afghanistan and he meets the Amazon women. And it's a tribe of all women, all virgin women too. And they sacrifice to Artemis, the goddess. And they tell him that there's another tribe of men not too far away. And that once a year, some of the virgins are given off to some of the men and they choose at their own will. It's a matriarch. The women decide who they marry. And the men are subservient to the women. And he actually really understands this. He doesn't, as his army mocks them, he puts them on thrones and gives them power. He gives Queen Candace the throne of Scythia and makes her queen of all of Scythia. So he writes a letter to Olympias and tells him that he's finally accomplished conquering the entire world. And then he's found the city of the sun with the 12 towers of emeralds and the dog-headed man. And he sees that there's two pillars of Hercules over here, just as there are in Spain. And that this is it. This is the border of the known world. He wants to keep going and see what's beyond. He wants to go into what is modern day China. But here is where his army says, we're done. We've done everything you've asked us to do. Great God Amon is telling him that this is it. Destined to go back to Babylon. And uh, he does have this last speech. It's called the Opus Mutiny. And it's a famous speech where he says the following. What I am about to say to you is not meant to stop you from returning home. As far as I came, go whenever you wish. But I want you to know how you've behaved towards me. And now I have treated you. I will begin as it is right with my father Philip. When he found you, you were mere peasants, wearing hides, tending a few sheep on the mountain slope, and you could barely defend yourself from the neighbors. After him, you began living in cities with good laws and customs, and he returned you from slaves and rulers of these barbarians who used to plunder your land. He conquered most of Thrace, taking the best of harbors, so there was trade and prosperity, and the mines of steady work. The Thessalonians, they used to terrify you. Well, we rule them now. The Athenians and Thebians, always looking for a chance to attack Macedonia, were so humbled, myself playing a small part in the war, but they would no longer take tribute from Macedonia. So then he talks about everything they did and everything they've accomplished. And then he finally ends with this. Go home and tell them that your king, conqueror of the Persians, Medes, Bactrians, and Scythians, who now rule over the Parthians, Chorasmians, and Harkarnians, as far as the Caspian Sea, who has marched over the mountains of the Hindu Kush, crossed over the Oxus-Tania rivers, even the Indos. First to cross it is Dionysus himself. I would have crossed the Hispios too if I wasn't crowned in fear. Who Dionysus himself, who sailed into the great sea from the mouth Indus, who crossed the desert of Betrosia, where no one had ever led an army. Who took Carmenia, where my fleet sailed at the Persian Gulf. When you get home, you tell them when you made it back to Susa, you abandoned him and wept home, leaving him under the protection of the foreigners you conquered. Perhaps this report of yours will seem glorious in the eyes of the men 
worthy in the eyes of the gods. And what happens is he's basically admitting that this is over with. But he says, you can go home or you can come with me into Babylon and we will rule this world together. And he gives them the option. And he kind of wins them over at this famous speech known as the Opus Mutiny. And he goes back to Babylon. And while he's in Babylon, Antipater is ruling Macedon while Alexander is ruling the east. And Antipater starts to turn on Olympias and starts to treat her badly. And this sorry, sets the stage of what's going to happen after Alexander's life ends. Antipater sends Iolus to Babylon with poison. The plot works. Iolus poisons King Alexander, the son of God, just as the oracle told him would happen. And Alexander dies. King Alexander, the son of Ammon, appoints Archias, the son of Philip, to be king of Macedonia for the present. But if Roxanne bears a son to Alexander, he is to be king of Macedonia and be given whatever the Macedonians please. And he sets up the stage for the next 200 years, basically, where he sets up these four regions. And those are the four divided lands that are talked about in the book of Daniel. But the story doesn't end here with his death. So Alexander's tomb is being sent back to the west. Antigonus is bringing it to Macedon, where he lay with his father. But Ptolemy makes a swift choice to jump up with his army and intercept the giant house on wheels that contains the tome of Alexander. And he brings the Alexander tome down to Egypt. And what he does is he takes the tome of Nectanebo, the golden sarcophagus that Nectanebo lied in, and he swapped it out with Alexander and put Alexander in the tomb of Nectanebo. And the story gets pretty crazy because what happens is they make a serapium for Alexander's tome, which is a house of Serapis. In the serapium, there lies the tome of Alexander. Julius Caesar will come by and pay tribute there. So will Augustus. Julius Caesar is said to have wept at the sight of the grave of Alexander. And they said, why are you weeping? And they said, he says, because Alexander has conquered so much more than me. And he was only 30 years old. Augustus goes and visits and he's offered to see the tome of Ptolemy where he says, I've came to see a king, not a corpse. And he's saying that Alexander is above Ptolemy. Alexander is our God. no history reporting the tome for a long time in the year 199 alexander's tomb gets sealed by septimus severus the emperor and then a few years later in 215 caracas removes his tunic and his ring and his belt and that gets recorded and then there's no records at all of what happens to his tomb forever after that that's the last time any records of show of where alexander's tomb is and john chrysostom in the year 410, so he went to go find it, and he did not know where it was, and none of the Egyptians could tell him where it was. However, the Venetian mer- merchants brought back a tomb that they thought was St. Mark, and they brought it to Venice. And at the time this happened, hieroglyphics were not decoded yet. No one knew what the hieroglyphics meant. They just were a mystery. No one knows what they meant. So they find this tomb that they think is St. Mark, 
the St. Mark that wrote the Bible, Gospel. So they bring it back to Venice and they set up a museum and it's there. And it wasn't until the 19th century that people started to learn how the hieroglyphics spell. So they decoded these hieroglyphics. And sure enough, the Tome of St. Mark says in hieroglyphics, here lies Nectanebo. Almost for sure, in my opinion, this is the St. Mark's home is not St. Mark. It's Alexander the Great. Because why would why would St. Mark be buried in Nectanebo's tomb? Alexander is the son of Nectanebo. Of course he'd be buried in that tomb. It only makes sense that somebody like Alexander would get such a glorious golden sarcophagus if it's his father's tomb, Nectanebo. That has to be. For the next hundred years, it would be wars between these warring states, these four different regions. Antipater tries to take the throne. He tries to take the Hellenic League for himself. So at this point, the Hellenic League has only seen two people take the throne, Philip and Alexander. And there hasn't really been a third person to rise up and take the Hellenic League. The throne of Hellenic League is like the throne of the United Nations. Every country in the world pays tribute to the United Nations in some way, shape, or form. So that's what the Hellenic League was back then. It was that much power. You had all of Gaul, all of Germany, Britain, Scythia, um, Persia, Egypt, Carthage. They were all paying tribute to this League of Corinth. Because if you pay tribute to the League of Corinth, you will have military defense. So this was a huge deal. So whoever can get the throne of this Hellenic League is basically king of the world. Of course, there's wars over this thing. So Antipater is the first to rise up and try to take Rome. But he dies in 319 BC, just a few years after Alexander. So it never materialized. And Eurydice, who is the queen of and the wife of the half-brother of Alexander, she aligns with Cassander who Cassander was aligned with Antipater, and he's opposing Olympias, the mother of Alexander. So what we see now is a civil war breakout in, in, in Greece, and Eurydice aligns with Cassander, and she goes to battle against Olympias. It's a battle of two queens. This is like the most epic battle of two queens that's ever happened in world history. And on one side, you got Eurydice. She's looking like Joan of Arc. She's dressed in armor and has weapons and, and shields. Then on the other side of the battle, you got Queen Olympias, the mother of Alexander. And she's dressed in robes of the priestess of Dionysus. And the winner who comes out is actually Olympias. But what happens is very strange. It says that as she's giving offering to Dionysus, literally while she's doing that, all of the army of Eurydice defects and goes to Olympias and says, we will not kill the mother of Alexander. So she wins that battle without a single person being killed. Not long after this, Cassander finds her, hunts her down, sends assassins to kill her. And when they see her in her robes of glory and royalty, purple linen, they will not kill her. They couldn't do it. But he sends another group of assassins 
to do the deed. And this time she tells the assassins, this is the end of my life. And don't be scared to do what you're going to do. I'm not scared. So why should you? She faces death like a lion. No fear. Doesn't scream. Doesn't kick. Doesn't do anything. So they do the deed and she dies. And apparently when Olympias captured Eurydice, she was the same way. Fearless. Now Cassander takes Macedon and Pella, and he has a throne of Macedon, but he doesn't have the Hellenic League yet. The Hellenic League is still divided up. There's no one who really, there's no clear-cut throne of the Hellenic League yet, but he wants it. By 303 BC, Demetrius rises up and takes the throne of Macedon, takes Athens, and takes and fights against Ptolemy, who has presence in Sparta. He gets the Hellenic League to support him. So now he is the third name on the list of Hellenic League kings. Philip, Alexander, and now Demetrius. And Demetrius will, will take this throne and keep it for the next 40 years. He beats Cassander. He doesn't kill Cassander. He lets him stay as the satrap of Macedon. Cassander also has a brother named Lysimachus. Lysimachus is now the satrap of Thrace. So he is in control of the Germans and Europe. And Antigonus is still ruler of the Levant. Seleucus still has Persia. And Ptolemy still has Egypt. But Demetrius is the Hellenic League leader. He is the one with all the yielding power. Now, Seleucus is tied up in the east. He's going to war with the Marian kings. These Marian kings rise up. And the grandfather, believe it or not, of Ashoka, Ashoka the Great, who built 33 pillars of his edicts, these Buddhist inscriptions. The grandfather of Ashoka, his name is Chandragupta. And he goes to war with Seleucus, and he wins, and he takes India and Afghanistan and the whole entire east is now divided up and no longer is Seleucus have all the east but he just has Persia which is which is good enough and he settles for that and he makes a peace treaty with the Mauryans and you're seeing these Alexander Aristotle mindset starting to take place in the world where Buddhist kings are rising up these philosopher kings are rising up and they're making peace treaties and yes there's still war but there's also peace as well So Lucas travels at record speed to go and join the action of the West because this is a big deal. Whoever has the throne of the Hellenic League is king of the world and it matters. So he goes to the West. And as he gets there, Ptolemy, Lysimachus, and Cassander are aligned against Antigonus and Demetrius. And this is a 50-50 split basically between men and resources. And when Seleucus gets there, he would be like the the X factor. He would change the course of the war immediately. And they kill Antigonus. And his empire is absolved by Seleucus. And Seleucus now has control of the Levant, Turkey, Asia, and Persia. Cassander is a satrap under Demetrius. And Demetrius is ultimately the king. But Ptolemy is allowed to keep his empire in Egypt. And this sets the stage for the Roman Empire because what happens now 
is the Hellenic League starts to move slowly towards the west, and the power the power starts to move into Rome. The Roman families, the patrician families, start to get very powerful and wealthy, and they they start to, to carry power over the Hellenic League. And the power is no longer in Greece, it's now in Rome. In the year 168 BC, Lucius Amulus Paulus becomes consul of Rome. And he is a patrician family member who is also a high priest and a military leader. So here you have this archetype of this philosopher king, in a way. And this is how Rome is going to run their country for the next thousand years. Lucius Aemilius Paulus, consul of Rome, conquers Greece and takes the Hellenic League and brings it over to Rome. And for the next thousand years, Rome is the power of the West. And he is a member of the patrician family, is the ancestors of both the Caesar faction and the Flavian faction. And they had this college called the College of Pontifus. And the highest of the Pontifus is the Pontifus Maximus, which is the Pope. Julius Caesar will take this title. So will Vespasian, so will Marcus Aurelius, and this is how they rule the West for the next thousand years in accordance to the philosopher king that Plato talked about. And they rule the Roman Republic in this way. And the Roman Republic materializes. So the so the the foundations that were made up by the Hellenic League Philip created. As you can see, Alexander the Great changed the world as we know it, and this is what this is the result of that. And Mithridates VI rises up in modern-day Turkey at 120 BC. And he is a descendant of both Alexander the Great and Cyrus the Great, so they believe that he is the Messiah. In fact, Apion talks about a poem written about Mithridates' birth, saying that a star in the east signified a king would rise up in Pontus and unify the world as his, as his fathers Cyrus and Alexander did and he would be the king of the world Mithridates the Great and he's nicknamed the Poison King and he has a very very successful run he does a lot of great military achievements however Pompey the Great would come and snuff him out and take what he wanted and Pompey the Great be the first person to ever step foot in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. It's never been done before, because anyone that would do it would be killed and smoked on the spot by Jehovah. The Book of Maccabees, written in the time of Alexander's death, says this, after the Alexander's Macedonian Philip's son, who came from the land of Kittim, had defeated Darius, king of the Persians and Medes. He became a king in his place, having first ruled in Greece. He fought many campaigns, captured fortresses, and put kings to death. He advanced to the ends of the earth, gathering plunder from him, and his heart became a proud and arrogant. He collected a very strong army, conquered provinces, nations, and rulers, and they became his tributaries. But after all this, he took his bed, realizing he was going to die, and therefore summoned his officers and nobles who had been brought up before him in his, in his youth to divide the kingdom among them while he was still alive. 
Alexander reigned for 12 years. King Antiochus was traversing the inland provinces. He heard that in Persia, there was a city called Elymias, for famous for its silver and gold, and that its temple was very rich, containing gold helmets, breastplates, weapons left by Alexander, son of Philip, king of Macedon, the first of the Greeks. He went, therefore, and tried to capture and pillage the city, but he could not do so, because his plan became known to the people of the city, who rose up in battle against him. So he retreated in great dismay, withdrew from the return of Babylon. Pompey the Great enters the temple, and Tacitus tells us what he sees is nothing. There's nothing in there. It's completely empty, except for a golden reef attributed to Pater Libre. Pater Libre is a Greek god inflated with Alexander the Great, because Pater Libre is in his story is he goes into the east and conquers the lands and gives liberty to everybody. So Tacitus is almost saying, are the Jews worshiping Alexander? Which is crazy to think that, but that's what he says. Now Ptolemy Soter, upon the death of Alexander, he decides to get more, more spiritual about this because he wants to be worshiped as a god just as Alexander does. So what he does after he swaps the tome is he sets up a a giant festival and the death of Alexander actually happens on Paschal Moon of Easter and he's almost exactly 33 years old he's 32 years and 8 months old and Alexander dies and he dies right around the weekend of Easter the Paschal Moon the full moon of April which is called the Paschal Moon which is the, the full moon before the Sunday of Easter this is the day Alexander the Great dies so the Egyptians have a festival during this time of the year, and they what they do is they have a Serapis statue with an Alexander statue, and a Dionysus statue, and a bunch of other gods, plus Ptolemy, and these, these statues are worshipped. This is what I think is proto-Christianity, because in Syria, a similar phenomenon happens with these Mithra worshippers. The god Enki in Babylon is renamed to Serapis, and all is equated to Amon. So you have these trinities all over the world. They're equated. You got Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, Ishtar, which is Isis and Venus, El, who is Zeus and Amon. And you're seeing that these imperial cultists are looking around the world and people like Plutarch, for example, are making these comparisons and doing these parallels. And this is how we, in my opinion, from from my research, I think that this is what is the proto-blueprints of Christianity. So Ptolemy sends a man, a priest, into Sinope, where Diogenes was from. It is said that the day Alexander died is the same day that Diogenes decided to hold his breath until he died. He died on the same day. Ptolemy gets an oracle from Amon. He gets a revelation from Amon in a dream. And Amon tells him that the Serapium needs a right, a correct statue to represent Serapis. And he tells him that there's a statue in the city of Sinope, which is the same city that Diogenes is from. And it's a statue of Pluto. 
And you go find that statue, you bring it back to Egypt, and you set it up. And that will be the statue of Serapis. So he finds this statue right here. And he sends, this, he sends the priest into Sinop, and he finds a statue labeled the Unknown God. Interestingly enough, the book of Acts also talks about Paul going into modern-day Turkey and finding a same statue it's called the Unknown God. And you're starting to see these parallels between the history of Serapis and the history of Christianity. So later on, I already mentioned that Caesar and Augustus visited the grave of Alexander. When the Jewish war breaks out, Nero starts a war with the Jews, and he is conflated with the 666 in the book of Revelation. He does the great abomination by killing his own mother, and he's basically destroying the world, and he's like the archetype of the great Satan. Four emperors die in one year. It's called the year of the four emperors. And Vespasian is having a conversation with the high priest, Yohanan, from Judea, from Jerusalem, where he tells them that he will rapture, basically, I say rapture in quotes, well, he will protect anyone aligned with him and anyone that opposes him, such as the Sakari and the Zealots, he is going to obliterate, and which this is what he does. And he becomes the wrath of God, and he destroys Jerusalem, destroys the temple, and brings the menorah and the tabernacle back to Rome. And the Jewish high priest tells Vespasian that he is the Messiah that is prophesizing. He tells him all these Bible verses that are prophecies for him. And next thing he does is he goes into the same place where Alexander was laid to rest, the Serapium. And he goes in there and he does an offering to Serapis. And he gets an oracle that he is the chosen anointed one. And next thing he does is he starts healing blind people, healing sick people, healing people that have defects and are dumbness and have crippleness. And he becomes like this savior figure. And he conquers all the Sakari. And he does exactly what Caesar did and exactly what Alexander did and brings about a new peace into the world. And this would set the stage for the next 200 years until Christianity is made a state religion. The Greek conqueror, Alexander the Great, brought new influence to Iraq and the rest of the Middle East, establishing new cities throughout the region. Alexander and his successors transformed the basis of Iraqi's economy and agriculture to trade and commerce. Exports including barley, wheat, dates, wool, spices, gold, precious stones, ivory, and butamen. The Greek rulers also increased the scale of irrigation, building complex waterways to carry water to great distances. Such trends made rural prosperity dependent on strong central government. The Parthians, who ruled Iraq from 126 BC to 227 AD, provided in this centralization. During the rule, Iraq's prosperity and population grew as Arabs and Iranians immigrated to the region. An Iranian dynasty, the Sassanid Persians, ruled from 227 to 636 until the Islamic period. Thus, the aftermath the aftermath of the West, the aftermath of Persia, and also the aftermath of Egypt. You're seeing it's all influenced by what Alexander did and what he set up. It's this philosopher king mentality from Plato and all the, and all the great thinkers. And the East 
followed suit even better than anybody else. Ashoka the Great and his 33 edicts and the Mauryan Empire, the Greco-Bactrian Kingdom, and the, the Golden, the Golden, the Gupta Age that lasted all the way up until the end of the Middle Ages into the medieval times. So as you can see, the known world grew drastically because of Alexander the Great. I actually want to say that I think by comparing the New World, the Native Americans tribes, the Aztec tribes, to the Old World, I think the difference is, is that the, the, the New World could have been the same speed of development if they had Alexander the Great rise up, which they did not. And that is the biggest difference, in my opinion. So that is basically the story of Alexander the Great and the legends, shrouded myth that surround his life and the changes he made to the world that affect the world that we live in today. If you like that, subscribe and check out my Patreon page too. Thank you.